Are Mexico and the United States growing apart, or are they, in fact, growing together? Welcome to another episode of 35 West, the podcast that talks about the 35 countries of the Western Hemisphere. My name is Richard Miles, and today I have as my guest Andrew Seeley, president of the Migration Policy Institute, and previously the founding director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So, Andrew, you've spent your professional career in the policy world as an academic, a staffer on Capitol Hill, and now more or less in the think tank world. But tell us about your pre-professional life. You know, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Were you the most popular kid in school? That sort of stuff. I was definitely not the most popular kid in school. I, I was uh, I was that geeky kid that suddenly went out into the world after college and and found myself and found my voice and and uh, discovered a fantastic world out there. And and the first place I moved after college was Tijuana, Mexico. Really? Okay. And so I I was very involved with the YMCA. It's an unusual path. I was very involved with a YMCA in St. Louis, Missouri, where I lived at the time, where I went to college, and. I uh, had an invitation to go work with the Tijuana YMCA with migrant youth and uh, low-income communities. And sort of reluctantly, I had wanted to move to Latin America, but I, I saw myself dancing tango in Buenos Aires or you know, contemplating a volcano in Guatemala. Probably not a good day to talk about that. So volcanoes blowing up these days, but a uh, beautiful country. And I ended up in Tijuana, Mexico instead, which is not known for its beautiful countryside, but is, or tango, but is a, uh, turned out to be a dynamic city to live in. And, and then I'm suddenly on the U.S.-Mexico border, went down for two years and stayed for almost six and uh, ever after that, I came back and did graduate work on uh, on Latin American studies and eventually got a Ph.D. and worked on the Hill for a bit and, and ended up in the uh, think tank world and the policy world in Washington, D.C. So you had no previous connection to Latin America? Like no. Family or friends or job or anything like that? Not really. No, I, I, was, uh, I was always interested. I thought I was going to actually study classical languages when I went to college. I, mean, I was a real high school geek. And uh, I say that proudly, by the way. But I, um, I ended up. I had Think of all fascinated. the people now claiming to know Andrew Seeley. So you're, you're, you're going to get your revenge. Of course, I know that guy. I was a shy kid, studious kid, but a shy kid, and 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 I actually I, I began to be fascinated with the the number of people speaking Spanish. Um, in I grew up in Washington D.C. and the number of people who were starting to speak Spanish actually, as there was a growing mostly Central American community, and so when I got to college, I decided to study Spanish, and I, I ended up with the Y doing some travel in Latin America, but it was really moving to Tijuana that uh, that hooked me for life on on following this relationship and and getting to a border where you realize how connected the the two countries were. That you know I was in Mexico and true, I mean Tijuana back then was really in some ways very distant, and yet you saw and what, how connected. What year are we was. talking about, Andrew? Probably 1992. So I was there, okay. you know, ninety two to right. ninety seven. So pre NAFTA, then pre yep. sort of opening to the yeah. kind of wider world. That's right, and I went through the NAFTA negotiations, living in a low income community in Tijuana, and thinking that this is a totally crazy idea. There's no way Mexico and the United States will ever be, you know, part of the same trading group. These are such different countries, as much as they're tied together. And and the more I lived there, the more I started to realize that that actually those connections ran deeper than I thought. And one of the stories in the book now is is. Uh, story of, of Tijuana and San Diego actually become a single metro area. And it's amazing now as I go back, you know, how how deeply those ties have run actually since I first moved there, you know, almost uh, 25 years ago. So you said you grew up in D.C. Were your parents, did they work for the government? Were they in the think tank world or what, what did your folks do? No, my dad was a uh, civil servant. My dad came from a rural community in Colorado, from Canyon City, Colorado, 
or as he used to like to say, from the outskirts of Canyon City, Colorado, um, which is known both for the Royal Gorge and the prisons of, of, of Colorado. And my mother was Danish. My mother was a nurse from Denmark who met my dad actually working. They both went to uh, work in a relief agency in Greece and met each other and fell in love and ended up moving to the States. And so I, I grew up in an immigrant household on my mother's side, um, but, uh, but very much with Danish culture and Danish tradition, nothing having to do with Latin America at all. So no obvious road signs pointing you to Tijuana. Nothing, <laughs> nothing at all, actually. It was not until I got to, to college and really started you know, doing some travel to Latin America that that, that caught that, up with me. Okay. So now, in fact, as you said, you have a new book coming out, and now you're basically the expert. At least you are, you are for the next uh, you know, six months. That's right. Um, I only play called, one on TV. Yeah, yes, right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> A uh, yeah. book is called Vanishing Frontiers, uh, the subtitle, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Um, now, it's rare to have a subtitle that could be considered controversial, but you seem to have nailed it. <laughs> so at any rate, it, it seems sort of counterintuitive, um, particularly given politically on the political level what we've seen the last year. And and you start out the book with this uh, great story about a town in Pennsylvania called Hazleton. And I thought it was a fascinating way to sort of Give us the big picture, but yet the details at the same time. So tell us a little bit, why did you pick Hazleton and what what story does it represent? Hazleton's a fascinating place, and it really is a great town, actually. I've spent a lot of time there, and, and I really like Hazleton. It, it is the city that became uh, – it was a city that was mostly white, mostly native-born, strong ethnic identity to Eastern Europe and Italy and Ireland, but had not had migration much for, for a century and suddenly started to have Mexican immigrants come in in the 1990s, in the late 1990s, and then Dominican and Peruvian and other immigrants that came in in the early 2000s, and is now about half Latino. So it was a very quick turnaround. And, and I say Latino rather than immigrant because a lot of the kids, these were people who mostly came. The, the parents are mostly immigrants from Mexico and Dominican Republic and elsewhere. But they had lived in New York, New Jersey area for a long time. And so a, a lot of the children are actually U.S. born in this case, which and gets lost in the debate in Hazleton. I mean, there's actually a lot of American right. citizens who are Latino, who are children of immigrants that move there. But it's a vast demographic change in in And why late years. 90s, Andrew? What was happening then that sort of mm. spurred this? The, the late 90s, you had had a, the, the huge Mexican migration to the U.S., you know, started in the 1980s and then really picked up in the 1990s. And it crested around 2000, between 2000 and 2005. It really crests. And then it drops. After 2007, Mexicans stopped coming to the United States, at least illegally, right? I mean, you continue to have a, a legal flow. But the Mexican population in the U.S., kind of become stable over this period. I mean, people come, people go. There's no longer a surge of Mexicans in the United States. But this period from the early 1990s through the early 2000s, there's a huge number of people coming. And, and the folks that came to Hazleton were part of that earlier wave who arrived in New York. They worked in New York. They lived in small cramped apartments, sharing space with other families. And at some point, as Hazleton, uh, this small town up in the mountains, in the Pocono Mountains, started to create some jobs in factories, and they got some tax breaks that allowed them to create industrial parks, um, a number of these people started to move to Hazleton. They discovered they could actually have a house instead of living in an apartment. And you know, wages weren't great, but they were you know a lot better than in New York. If you could, since your mother, your money went a lot further in Hazleton than than it did in New York. And so you have it becomes the epicenter actually of the anti-immigration movement. So Hazleton, two thousand six. Yeah, it's the first city that passes local ordinances that outlaw hiring uh, someone who cannot present legal papers and outlaw renting to someone who cannot present legal papers. And was this because of the speed of the 
transition? I mean, what what are sort of the some of the numbers involved? What what percentage of you know uh, Mexican immigrants moved there, and was it very very rapid? It was very rapid. I would say from the you know from 1990, that's about four percent Latino by. 2010, it's uh, 37% Latino, and today about half, about 50%. So it's fast. It's stunningly fast. And, and what you hear from native-born residents is, and, and, and it's worth, you know, I, I know some people hear this and say it's all about racism, but, but you have to, it, this is a town that, you know, suddenly transforms under people's eyes. And for many of the native-born people, it, it, it was a rapid town, a rapid change in the city that they'd grown up in. Right, and there's certainly a lot of racism involved in some people, but other people are just adjusting to, to change. Right, and on the other hand, you can understand the immigrants, right, and and their children who are just thrilled to come into the city that's really beautiful. It has a storied past, that's a lot of the city's been boarded up, and suddenly it starts to come to life. And one of the things you see in Hazelton is, you know, it it now has a thriving downtown. Even in the time that I've been going there in the last seven or eight years, it now has a thriving downtown area. It has a thriving business district in a slightly different place, you know, that came back to life. Um, because immigrants started businesses, and they all have Spanish language names. There, there are a couple of Middle Eastern businesses too. You know, I mean, it really you see that immigrants brought their entrepreneurial energy. But for people that were born there, it also is a sense of a town that changed around them. And you know, the, yes, it got better economically, but at the same time, you know, it changes the the nature of the town. And so that that blew up in 2006 and became, you know, the the first attempt to use local laws, local ordinances to try and push people who were in the country illegally out, in the city illegally out. It doesn't work. The courts strike it down. Um, and, and, and actually, you know, as people look back at it, there was, most of the people that moved to Hazleton actually had legal papers. So it, it actually was – there were not a lot of unauthorized people, it turns out. But, but there was a sense, right, that I mean, we sometimes confuse this in the debate um, that, you know, that, that immigrants are unauthorized even when they aren't. But the other thing that then happened in Hazleton that's so fun is that, that Mexican companies started investing in Hazleton. It had nothing to do with the, the immigration debate. It was just by chance. So Bimbo, the largest bread maker in the world – largest bread maker in the United States, about 26% of American baked goods, Entenmann's, Sara Lee, Oro Wheat, Thomas English Muffins, Baboli Pizza Crust, that's all bimbo owned. They take over one of the local factories and then they start another factory. And they suddenly start employing Hazleton residents in their factories. You know, and suddenly this is, you've had this debate right. about people crossing the border and now it's financial capital crossing the border. It's Mexican investment coming across the border and employing people. And what was it that was attractive to Mexican companies? Why, why Hazleton? Why Southern Pennsylvania? Hazleton attracted the Mexican companies for the same reason it attracted American companies. It is two hours from New York, two hours from Philadelphia, and right at the intersection of two main highways. And so and they had managed, Hazleton managed to develop these industrial parks, initially two of them and then a third. And so there was a place that people could set up shop. And they did that. And then another company called Arca Continental bought out Wise Potato Chips. Uh, for anyone who's a baseball fan, the Wise Potato Chip is the official potato chip of the New York Mets and the Boston Red Sox. So this is a storied, you know, for anyone who's not on the East Coast, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But this is a, an East Coast brand and, and particularly from sort of D.C. up to, to New England, um, but owned by a Mexican company. They expanded the factory after they bought it. And then you see Mission Tortillas um, come in, owned by Gruma, a Mexican company, comes in and starts a tortilla plant just outside of Hazleton. And suddenly there are four factories giving work to people in, in, in and around Hazleton, a place that it had such a tough, such a difficult, divisive immigration debate. So um, I imagine Hazleton is not an anomaly. It's sort of a stand-in for other types of communities. But the subtitle book says the force is driving Mexico. So I, I imagine there's more than one. It's not just economics here. What what are some of the other dynamics that, that cause you to argue that Mexico and the United States are getting closer rather than 
further apart. Well, I think you know the the forces include you know investment flowing back and forth includes people flowing back and forth. I mean, it's the 12 million Mexicans who live in the U.S. plus their descendants, who about 10 percent of the American population, but it's the a million Americans who live in Mexico as well. So people matter. It's border communities trying to solve creative problems, and then you know we think of San Diego as a border community, but L.A. is a border community. You know, Nogales is a border community in Arizona, but increasingly so is Tucson and so is Phoenix. You know, El Paso is a border community, but so is San Antonio and increasingly Dallas. So the border kind of moves out, you know, and, and cities begin to have a rhythm and a relationship across the border. Um, it's a film. You know, increasingly we're seeing Hollywood and Mexican film industry, which has really risen in the past decade and a half. See them working together. You see filmmakers going back and forth across the border in creative ways. And you know, one of my favorite statistics is four of the fa- five last uh, winners of the Oscar for Best Director are Mexicans. Which is incredible, which tells you how deeply connected these things are. I mean, and these are movies not about Mexico. This is gravity, right? I mean, you can't get a more universal sure. movie than, than gravity, right? It's, it's not even international. It's universal. Um, you know, these are niche indie films about, you know, some no. travelogues or something. No, these are major blockbusters, right? The Shape of Water, which is, you know, it's an artsy film, but it's actually a very successful artsy film, you know, made by another Mexican, uh, by Guillermo del Toro. I mean, these are movies that were of Mexicans who moved into the U.S. and made really universal international movies. But you see American. Americans moving to Mexico and making movies, too. And this, this is an industry that's connected. You see food going back and forth. I mean, you see all these cultural attributes as, you know, people move back and forth. As money move back and forth, you also see cultural tastes intermixing between the two countries. One thing that struck me about the 2016 presidential campaign and, and sort of the debate since then is it, it seems to me there's this big disconnect or almost a time warp between the reality of, of let's just talk about illegal immigration for a second. Um, as you know, the numbers sort of peaked right around 2007 in terms of net migration to the United States. Um, and a lot, a lot of reasons for that, uh, including collapse of the U.S. housing market, including Mexican demographics sort of plunge uh, down to a uh, birth rate that's much closer to the United States, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the reality is, is that the numbers of illegal immigrants that we saw in the 90s and early 2000s has pretty much gone away. But yet, a decade later, more than a decade later, this is arguably the hottest political hot button issue out there. Why? <laughs> it's hard to explain. I mean, because you're right. The last 12 years, we have seen, you know, a, a drop in the number of unauthorized Mexicans living in the United States, and, and the unauthorized population overall has been stable. Right? It hasn't gone up. Hasn't gone down. It's kind of, kind of there. I mean, and 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 most people who are unauthorized today, they're either Central Americans crossing the border, or more likely, they're actually visa overstayers from other parts of the world. So it would seem like this is a retro. A retro conversation about illegal immigrants jumping across the border, right? That's the conversation we could have had 15 years ago. But I think it's because, you know, the demographics of our country are changing so profoundly. And they're changing at a time where our economy is also changing and people feel insecure about the future of work. At least some people feel insecure about the future of work. And those two things are an explosive mix. So one thing is I think people are increasingly aware of how much the demographics are changing. And it's not just through immigration. I mean, I, this is through intermarriage. It's through, you know, all sorts of, of interactions that people have. And to some extent, the people that immigrated 15 or 20 years ago are more visible today as well. They're more likely to be your neighbor. They're more likely to have children in the same schools where your children go to school. They're more likely to be, you know, on the Chamber of Commerce board. You know, these are people who suddenly are visible in a way that perhaps they weren't 12, 15, 20 years ago. And so I think those demographic changes are happening at the same time that 
particularly people in 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 the working class are worried with good reason about the future of their jobs. The fact that, you know, automation is leading to the loss of jobs. And I think for a lot of people trying to tank, you know, untangle whether a job at the nearby factory was lost because of automation or because of trade or because of immigrants is a hard thing to do. And we know from facts that that almost all of the job losses are automation. Trade is second. Immigration, there's very limited competition with native-born Americans. Um, but nonetheless, it's hard to untangle those things. I think people at a time looking at a changing nation, as in Hazleton, looking at the, you know, the face of their town changing overnight, and at the same time worrying about whether they're going to have a job in 10 years, that's an explosive mix. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, as you mentioned, things like artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, are really changing the nature of work in the United States and in Mexico. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that some of those factories that moved to Mexico, they're now automated as well. It's not like they created thousands of jobs down there. They're, they've got robots as well. Um, you know, I, I guess one scenario could have it is that if, if uh, U.S. factories become more and more automated, for instance, and demand less labor, is that also going to then – uh, reduce sort of the pull factor for uh, Mexicans to come across to the United States? Or is it going to be sort of a wash in terms of fewer jobs, but the net effect is zero? Any any thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Well, you know, American industrial production has actually increased dramatically in the past 20 years, right? And we're producing more goods than we ever have, thanks in part to automation, right? I mean, automation is good for, for factor productivity. We're doing really well, um, but we're producing, this, you know, many more goods with many fewer people, right? So that is is where we are today. In theory, people are finding other niches in the economy because we're at near full employment. Some people would, would quibble with whether some people have dropped out of the workforce entirely and maybe we're not quite back to where we are. But but for the most part, it looks like we're in a we're in a pretty robust economy. People are getting jobs. But people who are in that that industrial middle class, in, in working class jobs, are finding it harder and harder to have the same income that they once had and to keep up with inflation and, and to get where they are. And they're more and more insecure about the future, about what comes next. And so I think that's that's an issue. Um, whether it's less of a draw, I'm not sure it's less of a draw for immigrants because we're seeing immigrants come from all over the world. Um, you know, We're seeing lots of interest in people moving here, and they're finding niches in the economy. Mexicans are not among them, though. I mean, interestingly enough, Mexicans, for whatever reason, and it's hard to explain, because Mexicans still earn a quarter of what Americans do on average, right? I mean, there's good reasons you would think that people would still want to move across the border, and yet, since 2007, you know, we see Central Americans starting to come. We see a huge Asian migration, and Mexicans are staying in Mexico for the most part. Yeah. No, I think you could make the argument, I've heard it before, is that you know life in Mexico doesn't have to be as good as in the United States. It just has to be good enough uh, to stay home and you know sort of uh, tied in with security and, and so on. Um, let's talk about uh, at the political level. Um, you know, half of my podcasts have been about Mexico, and it, it usually is bad news. I mean, it's it's NAFTA negotiations sort of falling apart or ending or stalling. It's about the wall. It's about at least one unfriendly president, and maybe we'll get two unfriendly presidents soon, uh, depending on how the Mexican elections go next month. And what does that mean for your thesis? Uh, you know, your, seem, your book seems to be describing pretty fundamental uh, economic, demographic, societal trends. Is that affected by rhetoric coming out of Mexico City and Washington, D.C.? Is it affected by political campaigns? What's your take? It's affected by political campaigns and political rhetoric, but it's not changed by it. Um, the, the introduction to the book is called, the introductory chapter is called Intimate Strangers. 
And the notion behind it is that we are deeply intimate between Mexico and the United States. It's a deeply intimate relationship. And yet we don't fully understand each other, right? There's still a distance in, in catching up to understanding it. But, but I think much of what's happened and much of the pushback on Mexico is Mexico is an intimate part of the United States. It's part of our lives. You know, it's part of our cultural tastes. It's part of our communities through Mexicans who've immigrated here and had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, it is part of our lives through shared manufacturing. We make goods together. We make cars. We, we make uh, airplanes. We make uh, washing machines together. We make all sorts of things, but we also sell goods to Mexico and buy goods from Mexico. It's, you cannot really get through a day without interacting with Mexico. And so the pushback, I think, comes because it's so deeply part of our lives. And, and things matter the more they are embedded in your lives. So I think the political rhetoric will make a difference in that part of the population is souring on Mexico. Um, a minority of the population, but it matters. And it will matter because we may actually see the North American Free Trade Agreement fall apart. I mean, I'm not saying we're not predicting that, but it could happen. And that would have some tangible results. But I don't think it'll change the broad outlines of the integration going on between the two countries because the forces are far more powerful and far harder to reverse. And when people do polling on attitudes towards Mexico, one of the, the interesting things, the Chicago Council, for example, has a very good detailed poll on this. One of the things they find is that, that – um, younger people have much more positive attitudes towards Mexico. And that should hardly be surprising. For, for young people, they've grown up with this intimacy. They've grown up with Mexico as part of their lives. Um, and it is harder for people who are older in this country, perhaps, that didn't grow up with Mexico. It's harder in places in the country that had not have a lot of immigration or a lot of global exposure. Um, but for the younger generations in small towns and big cities, it's just a, a fact of life. Mexico is simply there. It's simply part of who who they are and who we are as a country. Uh, the the Mexican view of the United States <clears throat> I find interesting, and this is just my sort of impression over the last year of being there several times. I'd be interested to hear what you think. Uh, you know, on one hand, without a doubt, President Trump is deeply unpopular in Mexico. I think of all the countries in the world that were surveyed, he's got something like a five percent approval rating. I mean, he wouldn't win an election. He there, would no. not win an election. Sort of worse than any other country that was measured. Um, on the other hand, I sense that when I've talked to Mexicans, that view is is contained um, to the person of Donald Trump. Doesn't even extend to the rest of the administration necessarily. And the sort of maybe latent or visceral anti-Americanism that I sensed, say, 20 years ago, is, is largely gone. It doesn't mean that it's completely gone and that it couldn't be you know, resurrected after a year of really bad relations. But one thing that struck me about the presidential campaign, for instance, is how actually little genuine anti-American rhetoric there is in the presidential campaign, apart from just criticizing Donald Trump and, and what he said. It doesn't really carry on to, well, this is how all Americans are. What are, what are you hearing? Is that is that a correct impression or am I misguided? I think you're completely right. I mean, I, I think, and again, polls show that younger Mexicans are much more positive to the U.S. because for them, they grew up with not the U.S. as the you know enemy that took away a third or half of their territory, but you know as the neighbor next door that they're integrated with, right? That they consume American TV programs and they know someone who studied there or someone who migrated there. You know, it's just part of their universe. Um, and, and I think that is a huge change. And, and you are seeing it in this elections where Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the leading presidential candidate in Mexico, is would be a natural candidate to be anti-American, coming from the left, himself very skeptical of entanglement, sort of a Mexico first candidate. And yet he's very pragmatic on the United States. In fact, it's not that he likes or doesn't like the US. He just accepts that it's there. 
right? I mean, he would certainly be less engaged with the U.S. than his predecessors if he's elected, and there's no doubt that there's probably a little more of a nationalistic vein. But in the end, he kind of assumes that the U.S. is just part of the equation, you know, as most Mexicans do. You know, Mexico is not. It's the great thing about being neighbors, right? I mean, you know, geography has has actually made us neighbors, and nothing we do, whether we build a wall or we pull out of a trade agreement, is going to change that. Nor is it going to change the the demographics in either country. Nor is it going to change the cultural influences. Nor is it going to change the investment decisions that have been made by millions of companies or or workers working together across the border to make things. These are things that are here to stay, no matter what the politicians do. And I and I think most Mexicans, including someone who should have been, you know, by by all lights in another era would have been the standard bearer of anti-Americanism, you know, everyone just simply accepts it as the way it is. And I think that's right. I've said before, I think on this show, that I think probably one of the biggest benefits, if not the biggest benefit of NAFTA, is that you've had a quarter century of relationships that have developed around this this trading relationship. But yet, if NAFTA would go away, those relationships wouldn't necessarily go away, uh, at least not uh, immediately. And I think the the overall relationship has really benefited from the fact that you now have CEOs that know each other personally. You have mid-level managers that know each other personally. In the government, you have senior officials, mid-level officials. You have military officers that have close relationships with their Mexican counterparts. And I don't um, think that's just going to simply collapse. At least that's my hope. But I think that and NAFTA carved out a space to do that over the last quarter century. I think that's right. And I think there are too many things. I have a chapter where I talk about law enforcement cooperation. I interviewed a number of people in law enforcement on both sides of the border, law enforcement, intelligence agencies, military. And one of the things you see is those relationships have just built up in dealing with organized crime on both sides of the border since the Bush administration, right? This sort of move in the Bush and the Obama administration it continues under Trump, right, to, to work together to deal with organized crime and drug trafficking. You see it in economics. You see it in people who studied on both sides of the border. I mean, it's just these relationships run deep. And, and one of my favorite stories, I'll tell very quickly, is, is of, of San Diego and Tijuana, these two cities that I lived in back in the 1990s, so distant back then. And, and they end up actually building a, a bridge across the border fence because San Diego needs a bigger airport. And San Diego has not been able to figure out how to get a bigger airport so they can have jets that fly to airplanes that fly to Asia because they, they're really heavily into the innovation economy. But you can't really compete with Los Angeles and San Francisco unless you can fly to China and Japan and Korea. And it turns out Tijuana already has that in its airport, and the airport's right on the border. And so what they end up doing is deciding in San Diego, they decide that their best option is to use the Tijuana airport. And Tijuana is thrilled. Tijuana leaders are thrilled with this. And they get a private company interested. And they end up actually building a bridge that allows you to park in San Diego, cross, check into your flight in the United States, cross the bridge, go quickly through immigration and customs, but very expedited, and then go to your gate and hop on your plane. And so you use the Tijuana airport as though it's in San Diego. Right, and this has become the symbol for these two cities that were once very different of their working together. And they actually, and, and and the great thing about San Diego too is San Diego is unlike the rest of California is actually very conservative. It's the one conservative big city in California. This was not driven by, you know, idealism. This was not driven by some vision of integration. This was driven by practical necessity. Yeah, yeah it's pragmatic. Well, I can think of about a dozen U.S. cities who probably want to schedule uh, shuttles to Tijuana just to take advantage of that. Yeah, it, it was great. And, you know, and, the, and then they just started discovering the same way to have relationships, right? They started discovering as they were working on this other things they could do together. And so, you know, they discovered their economies were pretty complementary and that they actually had a lot of the same thing. And that, cult, that Tijuana had a slightly better food scene. San Diego's not bad, but Tijuana has possibly the best food scene in Mexico. 
Mexico right now. It's, uh, who would have thought? Not when I was living there. Always good food, but this is like high cuisine now. They've got wine country. They've got a good orchestra. You know, and people from Tijuana had long been going up to San Diego for cultural taste, those that had money to do it. Now suddenly you have people from San Diego going to Tijuana to enjoy an evening out, not to go drinking, get drunk, but to go have good wine or go have a good meal. You know, and these things build relationships and it builds respect, mutual respect on both sides. Here you have San Diego and Tijuana, two cities that couldn't have been more different 20, 25 years ago. And I, the mayor of San Diego actually says in the interview in the book, he says, you know, we don't talk about two cities. We talk about one metropolitan region. And that's the way people are starting to think about this. Um, so, Andrew, one last question. I, I know you're not a you know political handicapper, but I'm going to go ahead and, and put, get you on record here, right? To, we can always destroy this tape later on. But <laughs> a couple questions on, on just pure politics. One, do you think Lopez Obrador is going to win in, uh, you know, we're recording this in early June, so about a month from now or less than a month from now. And then two, if he does win, do you think the relationship with the United States under a Lopez Obrador government is going to get better, worse, or stay the same? Those are tough questions. Let's see, Richard. Um, I would say yes. Uh, all polls tell us. All the polls are pointing the same direction. All the serious polls, which is that Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has a very big lead, and so far he's done nothing to blow it. And no other candidate seems to have generated the same kind of enthusiasm. So anything can happen in politics. I mean, you know, I I was also writing in a Mexican newspaper saying that Donald Trump wasn't going to win the election. So I, you know, I, I, my my record on these things is not good. But but if the polls continue as they are, I mean, he's ten to ten to twenty points up on the nearest challenger, and nothing's moving that yet. So he's likely to win. And, and I think there's a more likelihood that he not only wins, but wins a majority in Congress, which is hard to do, um, than, than him losing. But either could happen, right? And I think it does make the relationship more distant at a political level. I, I, we've seen governments in Mexico that have really felt the U.S. was integral to their economic policy, integral to their foreign policy. Um, they cared a lot about what happened in Washington. I don't think he's going to be anti-American if he wins, but I think he will be indifferent to the United States. I think he will be less willing to take offenses and slights uh, on the chin and keep moving, which other Mexican governments have done. Um, I think there'll be less high-level conversations. But on the other hand, so much of what happens, you know, as you said earlier, so much of what happens in government between the two countries goes on day to day at a lower level, right? I mean, these relationships that have built up through time in law enforcement, in the State Department, the Mexican Foreign Ministry, on the agriculture. I remember someone in the agriculture, Department of Agriculture telling me years ago, he said, look, I only know two phone numbers outside the US, and it's my counterpart in Mexico, my counterpart in Canada. He said, I know my, I've met my counterparts in many other countries, but I know those numbers because we talk all the time. And I think those relationships will continue, but we're going to lose some of the political direction we've had in the past. Now, I've heard some people way out there say that uh, there's enough similarities in Donald Trump's personality and Lopez Obrador's personality that they may actually get along. How much money would you put on them becoming, you know, the best of buds? I, I don't see that happening. I think I think there are some things similar in their personalities are ultra confident men, um, you know, who, who are used to being listened to and followed. Um, and uh, Lopez Obrador does not personally tweet, as far as we know. He has people that tweet for him, but he, but you know, they they will do policy in unconventional ways. You know, if not by tweeting, at least by statements that would you know shock advisors. Ne neither one follows the niceties and the formalities of politics. A lot of people love that. Other people think it's the end of the world. You know, people can disagree on this, um, but there's enough differences, and and I think. 
you know, Donald Trump is the American ideal of of the successful businessman. Maybe not everyone's ideal, but he's you know sort of the classic sort of American. His family up by the bootstraps. Maybe not him, but you know his his father um, still like sort of the still likes a hamburger and a diet coke, even though he he could Lot, afford lots more. Lots of them, apparently. Lots of them, right? Exactly. He could afford more, but he's yeah. still he's still a regular guy. Lopez Obrador is is different. Lopez Obrador is a man who doesn't care anything about money. You know, he he lives in a very he's not poor, but he lives in a very modest way for someone who's been a politician. Um, he dislikes the idea of people who have money, although he has some people around him who do. But he's he's not turned on by that at all, and he sees himself in a different ideal of a man of the people, a Mexican ideal of the man of the people, who's you know modest, um, you know plain spoken, uh, dressed informally. You know that's Lopez Obrador. It's a different image. They're they're somewhat similar in some ways, and yet they're playing to two different archetypes. So if Trump and Amlo go on golfing outings to Mar-a-Lago, I'm going to come looking for you, Andrew. That's right. And say, you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the different. I, you know, Lopez Obrador doesn't golf, right? He doesn't do any of these things. That he doesn't speak English. He doesn't do the things that the Mexican elite does, right? I mean, he he is the opposite in some ways than every other than every other leader that Mexico has had recently who have been part of this global elite, right? And they fit in. You see right now, Luis Villarreal, the foreign minister of Mexico, gets along famously with Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of, the, of President Trump. They see each other all the time, if we can believe press reports. You know, they have a good personal chemistry. They they work things out, you know, as much as they can. I, You know, Lopez Obrador just comes from a different... A, a, a different idea of what it means to be a man of the people than Donald Trump is. They both think they're men of the people, but it, but it's a different ideal. Right. Andrew, fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, congratulations on your book, which comes out uh, very soon, Vanishing Frontiers. Uh, I encourage everyone to check it out and look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. Thank you.